Welcome to the Yogi MD podcast. It's Nadine, yoga teacher, health coach, and retired doctor, here to bring you and your body together, not in sickness, but in health. Thanks for taking this time for yourself. Today, I'd like to welcome Thalia Bishop, who is in her last year of training to become a clinical psychologist. Thank you very much for being here. How are you doing today? I'm good. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us about how you have become the person you are today? Grew up in New York. My parents are Panamanian, first generation born here, and went to school in New York, all of those things. Had a son when I was pretty young. I was 18. Um, and then stayed in New York until I finished school, until I finished, uh, I guess, undergraduate, and then the first version of grad school. <laughs> and then... Um, moved here to Maryland. I always studied business and then realized that it was interesting enough, but it kind of felt like at the end of the day, I was like, what, like, whose life, who did I really help today? Besides people who already have a lot of money that doesn't really help me in any way, or Mm -hmm. I don't know that it helps most people in any way. And so decided to do the career switch to psychology. So you really didn't feel like you were being fulfilled with your studies before? Oh, no, not at all. It really was just kind of like, I mean, a lot of it was survival because I was single mom, young, you know, and it was kind of like, well, we have to eat. I have to figure out some way to survive. And business seemed like a good way to go. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, that's pretty much how I ended up there. It wasn't like, oh, I always wanted to work in banking. So why clinical psychology? Multiple reasons. One, I think I had always had struggles in terms of like, mental health and not understanding it and not talking about it and I think seeing pieces of it in family and so feeling like I want to help people. Initially I felt like I wanted to help like adolescents but I always had this fear of like messing someone up and so then it was kind of like well go to school like learn more about this and see one if it's something that you really want to do and then also to figure out ways to help people that people have tried and figured out actually help. So this is a great segue to start talking about the main reason I was so interested in having you talk to us today. Mm -hmm. It's not commonplace for people to be so forthright, so honest, and so vulnerable to be able to talk about a mental health issue. It's usually a very taboo subject and something that is a little bit easier to hide because it's Mm -hmm. not physically apparent and associated with shame. So I really admire your strength in being so vocal and being such a great advocate about taking care of your mental health. You've talked about having anxiety and depression. Mm -hmm. So can you tell us when those feelings started becoming an issue? It's interesting. Looking back now, I feel like as long as I can remember, we, we talk about, you know, is it nature or nurture? Like how much of this is hereditary and how much of this is just the fact that, you know, now I look back and my mother was, quote unquote, a worrier. I, I have an aunt that recently texted a picture of us like during a summer um, here in Maryland. And I looked at the picture and I remember when I would come here during the summer, I would be so anxious and really just nervous. And I was always worried that something was going to happen to my mom while I was away. 
And I mean, we, you know, kids miss their parents, but it was a kind of like, I can't even like enjoy what I'm doing right now, like playing mm-hmm. and hanging out with my cousins because mm-hmm. I need to call my mom. I need to make sure my mom is okay kind of thing. And so I feel like as long as I can remember, there's been a piece of that. You know, I was a kid that was like, I was a crier, which is his own separate thing. Cause then I feel like I hit a point that it was like, oh, you can't cry. And there's a, there's a cultural piece there too. But, but yeah, like I think I was always kind of, feeling all the feelings. <laughs> when I hit adolescence, though, when it started to get a little harder to hide that something was like going on. And I remember being um, in the office of the, I'm Reverend Good, the pastor of the church that we grew up in. And I don't even remember what we were talking about. Like, I just remember like crying. And I remember part of like why it was scary to him was that I don't, whatever it was, it didn't match the level of crying. Huh. And I remember him kind of being like, uh, you know, I always I, I tell him to this day, I appreciate the fact that he realized like this might this is a little more than what I can help her with. And he contacted my mom and then my mom, I think he even referred a, a psychologist and I went and started to see someone then. Did your mom have an inkling that something was going on? Well, I think there's two pieces of that. One, I imagine that she noticed the sadness, like she noticed something. But again, we don't talk about it. You just kind of feel, you know, there's almost like this belief, I think, that, you know, if we just act like whatever it is isn't there, it will go away. Um, so I think there was that piece. And then there was also the piece that my mom had her own mental health issues. So she was a worrier, which makes me now in retrospect think how much of that was anxiety. And she also had depression, which we didn't realize... I don't think I fully grasped until she was gone and we were like going through her things. And then you start looking back on all the behaviors and you realize like you saw that she stopped doing the things that she was interested in doing. Like she wouldn't go visit family anymore. And she wouldn't, you know, gradually that progressed to like she wouldn't go outside anymore. Hmm. Um, And so then it's like, oh, that's what that was. How Um, did she describe not being interested, say, in going out and doing things that she loved doing or she was used to doing. What was the language around that? There was no language. And I think that's that's just it. There was no there was no description. There was no language. There were no conversations about it. You just noticed that, like, you know, started. I'm like, I'm not going to I'm not going to Connecticut this year for Christmas. So I'm not going you know, to Maryland with you all this year for for Thanksgiving or whatever it is. so yeah, it started a gradual. Well, now I look back, it feels like it was gradual. She just stopped, and I remember my brother trying to get her to go talk to somebody, and she just wouldn't go. So yeah, there wasn't a lot of dialogue. There wasn't a lot of conversation. The interesting part is that she was a psych nurse, and so I feel like she she knew. Um, I imagine on some level, but again, we didn't talk about it. It's so moving to think that she spent her life Mm -hmm. repressing what was going on or denying it, maybe. Is that the right word, do you think? Almost hiding it, maybe. Like, I don't know. know, Maybe all of the above. But yeah, I think that there was a big piece of like, if we just kind of hide in the shadows and don't don't bring it up. As we got older and the cousins and the siblings that are sort of more in my generation started to have more conversations. And so, you know, you start talking about being depressed or being anxious or not liking going certain places, doing certain things. And suddenly it was like, oh, like you experienced that too. 
you know, finding out after we lost one of my aunts that like she was taking medication for anxiety. And it kind of felt like nobody thought to mention this. <laughs> like nobody. <laughs> you know. Do you think some of this, because it was not being discussed, was becoming normalized in the, mm-hmm. because it's in the background. It's just normal. You notice it, but not really. Does that make yes. sense? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think it was becoming normalized. It was just kind of like, you know how that aunt is, you know how that uncle is, you know how that person is. Um, And I think that just kind of became a part of it. You know, so-and-so just worries a lot. Um, So, yeah, I think it just kind of became part of who we were and you know you don't realize that you don't have you don't have to worry about everything I remember my mother didn't really even I mean she was anxious about things that you thought like okay yes and then she'd be like she almost felt like she would find stuff to be anxious about like she didn't even know about computers she didn't have a computer but she was so obsessed about computer viruses and so so when back to Reverend Good with mm-hmm. you making the decision to call your mom and giving her that signal that uh oh something is wrong maybe we need to get a little bit of help here what was your mom's response? Um, I mean, I don't remember the exact response. I do remember that she did it. Like I remember that I started to go to see a psychologist, and even in that though, I remember. And sometimes it's hard when you look back and you kind of feel like how much of this was like what I put on it and how much of it was actually happening. But I felt like I remember a certain level of shame even in that. Mm. The other cousins, the other, everybody else was able to kind of like hold it together. You know, I I wasn't able to hold it together. And, And, you know, once you start going, then people know. That you can't hide it anymore. Right. You know what I mean? Like at some point you slip and say something or whatever it is. And so, yeah, you can't hide it anymore. So to me, I kind of became like the one to for myself, like the one who just couldn't seem to hold it together. Did any of your cousins say anything to you? Not that I remember. You don't you don't have a full conversation about it. We know. But you don't actually have like any kind of like actual full any any real dialogue about it. Did you have friends at that time? Who might yeah. have noticed and said anything? Nah, I think the same. We didn't talk about that. And I think, too, the other hard part is that, like, I was growing up in Brooklyn in, like, the 80s and 90s. So then you also just had so much crazy going mm-hmm. on, you know, in the world around us, So which I'm sure added to my anxiety. So, like, I could talk to you about my feelings. Or I could talk about the fact that, like, we're in the middle of, you know, the crack epidemic and there's all kind of crazy going outside. You know, you got friends coming to visit you, getting robbed on their way to your house. And it's like, I don't really have time to talk about my feelings right now. (laughs) You realize in retrospect that like we probably should have because everybody's, you know, walking around traumatized even from that. And so I wonder if that becomes the more pressing issue, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, the the fight for survival Mm -hmm. then makes anything else seem really inconsequential by comparison. Right. You're trying to, like, protect your body. So, like, yeah, I'm trying to just sort of make sure that I'm still surviving day to day and getting where I need to be and getting home and seeing all the things that I'm seeing out there that kids don't really need to see. I still go to therapy. And interestingly enough, recently in a therapy session, I don't even know how we got to it, but we we got to the fact that I remember having a conversation with somebody who I was friends with at the time. And she made a comment that like, 
people don't want to talk to somebody who's sad all the time. Oh. And I, right. And I remember in that moment being like, ouch, like that hurt. Yeah, that's <laughs> awful. So, so I think it's like to answer your question about like, did I talk about it with friends? There probably was a time that I did. But even like after that, even other friends who never said anything like that, I kind of felt like, well, you know, people don't want to talk to somebody who's sad or people don't want to talk about feelings. Mm. So I'm going to just hold on to all of this. It's so easy Mm -hmm. to be nice and superficial and hang around when everything is peachy. Mm -hmm. But when you really know somebody's really with you Mm -hmm. is for those tough times. Right. Where right. you're not very entertaining or not doing what they think you should be doing or saying what they would like you to say or being agreeable. Mm-hmm. So have you been able to really cherish and connect with those people who can understand and give yeah. you space to be yourself? Mm-hmm. Yeah, at, at the time, no. I think at the time I held on to those people and that is likely in retrospect why a lot of other self-destructive thoughts, behaviors stuck stuck around for as long as they did. Because again, at the time, it's also there's also a survival piece of like, well, you know, whether it's going back and forth to school or whatever it is, you're not trying to do this alone. So I think mm. for a long and and again, I think also like I don't at the time I didn't have anything to compare it to. So it's not like I had some friends who I could talk about emotions in a healthy way with and somebody that couldn't. It was kind of like, well, this is just what it is. Um, so I need to hold it all in. Years later, lots of therapy, lots of other things. I have now learned to be able to say, like, everybody doesn't have to be your friend at the same level. Um, it's certainly mm-hmm. a, a quality versus quantity. Mm-hmm. Um, and... You know, come when I come across folks that I realize that that is the thing that, you know, you can't allow me to have my ups and downs and vice versa, you know, to be able to feel vulnerable and be able to do that in front of me. You know, now I feel like I've gotten a lot better at being able to sort of navigate that. What kept you going to therapy? Survival. Um and I think through the years, I feel like I stopped and started for different reasons, you know, whether it's you don't have insurance anymore or you feel like, oh, I'm doing better. Um, so I think through the years, there were different reasons why I went back and forth. I feel like often what would make me go back was usually something traumatic happened. So, you know, a friend died, a parent died, just that sort of level of like, I can't I can't manage this and the regular day-to-day stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I think now what keeps me going is just one, seeing the value in it. And I think the profession I've chosen. So, you know, on the one hand, feeling like, how can I s- say to people that getting therapy is important mm-hmm. and valuable, but I'm like, but not for me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so that piece of it and the fact that like, I do, I am emotional. You know what I mean? Like there, there's a lot, there are pieces of that little thalia that are still here. I am emotional and I do feel a lot. And so to hear, to spend my days and my evenings now, you know, seeing people at their, at, sometimes at their worst moments and going through trauma and talking about their traumas, I, I'll hold all of that. And just the world we live in. Like there are times when I'm just like, there's so much crazy happening in the world. Mm-hmm. 
that I'm kind of like, okay, I need to know that I have this sort of space where I can go and process and release all of this in a healthy way. So what is it specifically? Because I think for someone who may not have not gone to therapy ever, Mm -hmm. what is it about the therapy that is helpful? So, okay. So that's interesting too, because I feel like it's different things at different times for me, for in terms of like my experience. So when I was the adolescent or right after my mom died, it was just going, having some place to go and like cry and feel all the emotions and, you know, talk through all the pain and all of those things. Like it was just a, a safe place to go and release those things. Um, through the years it shifted. And so there are times when therapy was a place for me to work through the childhood traumas. So like take it back to like, what are the things that are impacting me now? Why is it that there are things that can happen even now there are things that can happen or things that people can say. And I am like heart racing, you know, full on just anxiety. Like why am I feeling this way? And a lot of times it's like, okay, because that just tapped into something from a long time ago. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there's also that piece for me is going and having some place to help me to figure out like what, why am I being triggered? Like what, why are these things happening? Um, and then also for me, it's been like working through some of the insecurities and helping me to sort of move forward. Like I remember, you know, the first time that I started grad school in New York, that I was my insecurities and sort of like my imposter syndrome were like so heavy that I remember for like at least the first year of my program, sincerely believing that they had accepted me accidentally. And so at some point somebody was going to figure it out. So like that was the level of like the insecurities mm-hmm. and the imposter mm-hmm. syndrome. Clearly, I graduated. Mm-hmm. I, you know, no, there was no mistake. Um, and so I think for me, therapy has been that too of like when you have all those fears and all those insecurity and all of those things and that's those you know issues in terms of self-esteem I couldn't see sort of a future for myself or I couldn't Mm. see the possibilities and for me going to therapy has helped with that it's helped me to sort of figure out like what are I have strengths like what are my strengths so I think there's that piece too and then sometimes too it's like having somebody to call me out on my stuff you know what I mean? So I, I, I always appreciate that, too, having a person that's kind of like, all right, yeah, so-and-so didn't have to say that, but you were wrong, too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I think it's sort of like all of those kind of things are important to me. So it changes. It changes. What I need in the moment shifts. Mm-hmm. Although by no means limited to only one culture or mm-hmm. uh, one race, I will say that African-Americans, especially women, Uh, Think of mental disorders as a very taboo subject, as we've Mm -hmm. talked about earlier. We're friends on Facebook. And Mm -hmm. um, so I'll notice that not only do you post helpful articles and helpful links, but you're also always so willing to talk about yourself and your vulnerabilities and your willingness to keep seeking help. Mm -hmm. How do you keep doing this? Where do you find the strength? You're right. There's such a strong like stigma and a taboo when it comes mm-hmm. to mental health. And for me, I feel like I get it from multiple places. 
you know, I was raised here and in a lot of ways sort of raised within like an African-American culture. But then I also have like the Latinx, the Latin background because my parents are Panamanian. Mm -hmm. Nobody talks about it in either of those settings. You're right. I think it definitely crosses cultures and it's it's challenging. I think what gets, when I post something, even at, like, I think it was like last week or something that I posted something about like, you know, things have been kind of rough, but, and I shared an article, like I think about that for a minute. For a number of reasons. So, mm-hmm. like, I think about it in terms of, like, well, who's going to see this? And I'm definitely not friends with any of my clients. But generally, I am very funny about, like, who I'm friends with on Facebook. But they're still sort of like, well, I have some supervisors. If they see this, are they going to, you know, what are they going to think? Are they going to have a reaction to this or things like that? Um, so I do think about it. I think what more often than not gets me to push through is I think it's important for my healing and inevitably... When I post something, whether it's a response to the actual post, whether it's somebody sending me a message in my inbox, someone will reach out to me and say, thank you for sharing. I have a similar experience, so I'm struggling with that, too. And I think that's the only way we knock out the stigma. That's the the only way we get there is that if we start talking about it and start realizing that there are way more people out there that are dealing with these things than we realized. Because that was a big thing for me for a long time was that like everybody else has this figured out but me. Like, well, you know what I mean? It seems like why does, you know, why am I having so much difficulty with this? And all my cousins and friends and everybody else seems like they're just kind of going through their life and they're fine. And then it's kind of like, no, like a lot more people are struggling than we realize. Um, And that was funny too, because I, I made the post and I thought I was clear in the post that like, I'm okay, you know, this is, I deal with, and I got like text messages and phone calls from like family, like, are you all right? And it's funny because it's like, I appreciate it. I appreciate it. I'm glad, you know, I appreciate people paying attention. But it was also another one of those reminders of like, see, this is why we should talk about it more often. Because if we, if we talked about it more often, people wouldn't go into a panic because I said I had a rough week. I appreciate you checking in, but I wish this was such a normal dialogue that it could kind of be like, you know, thanks, you know, we're here for you. Like, thanks for sharing, you know, whatever it is. But yeah, I got like one phone call with somebody who was like really worried. And again, I'm glad you're paying attention, but I just wish we would talk about it more. So it wasn't such a like, oh my God, when somebody does share. Well, I think you're definitely paving the way and opening that door. We do need people to start that dialogue and to Mm -hmm. keep it, the door open because we need to be able to see ourselves in each other. Mm-hmm. We need to be able to see that we're not alone. And we also need to be able to to be okay with, you don't have to be clinically anxious or clinically mm-hmm. depressed. Mm-hmm. It can be situational. There's mm-hmm. no shame in going and getting help if you need it to get through a particularly difficult phase in your life. Mm-hmm. And as you've been so eloquently saying, if we can just make that something that isn't so normalized to go back to what you talked about earlier with your mom. Mm-hmm. It was normal to suppress, but mm-hmm. can we normalize the ability to be vulnerable and to say, to reach out and say, I need help for this just because it's not a broken limb doesn't mm-hmm. make it any less meaningful. Yeah. I've done great work in therapy when I was like in crisis, like, something traumatic happened, or I'm just having a rough time. Like, there's not always a perfect reason. But I've also had some, like, really great progress in therapy when, for all intents and purposes, things were good. 
you know, I always joke around about the fact that before I started my current program, you know, I was working and banking, living in Silver Spring. I would I laugh because I'm like I had a perfectly good job that I quit, which in retrospect sometimes I wonder, but but like part of you know, I don't I don't regret it and I feel like I'm moving in the direction I'm supposed to. But at that time I was in therapy and I wasn't in crisis. Things were good. Like things were good enough that I was like thinking about future plans and what I want to do with the rest of my life and applying for graduate school, which, you know, if you ask 17 year old me, if they'd ever be able to even think about getting a doctorate, I don't even know if I totally grasp what it was. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think that's a valuable thing, too, of realizing like, yeah, you don't have to be in crisis. Sometimes it's kind of helping us sort of like navigate just the day to day pieces of life and figure out where do we want to take this or just find a piece where we are. My question to you now then would be, (laughs) what is your personal definition of what it means to be healthy? There's no physical illness. I don't feel any pain. I don't feel any sadness. I don't feel any. I don't know if that's necessarily healthy either. I don't know if it's realistic. (laughs) For For me right now, being healthy is just taking care of me. Being healthy is being patient with me and being kind to me. Like kind of like giving myself, you know, having the patience to give myself what I need without judgment. Like you're okay where you are. Like, so if that means that today I need to take it easy and not do my normal running around, then fine. Um, being healthy means I'm getting, I'm getting sleep that I need. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I think, you know, being healthy for me means that like if I if I suddenly start to feel anxious and my stomach starts to get upset and my heart starts racing and I'm like, what is, you know, something wrong with my heart kind of thing. um, When I'm in a healthy place, I can take a deep breath and slow it down. It doesn't mean that I am unhealthy or bad or broken. It just means that I'm human. And I think being healthy to me, so I think it's a lot of that sort of just like being mindful of this is life, take a deep breath, there are ups and downs, all of that is okay. I cannot tell you how deeply grateful I am and humbled by your willingness to be my guest today. I am one of the luckiest people in the entire world. You've given (laughs) me and other people a, a real gift. Thank you very, very much from the bottom of my heart for sharing today. Thank you. I appreciate that. And now it's time for practical tips. Mind tip. Get help if you need it. Or reach out to someone if you think he or she needs help. Body tip. Get enough sleep, eat well, real food, and get enough exercise. Spirit tip, be kind to yourself, no matter where you are. Thanks for being here. See you next time.